Thanks be to God. All right, well, it's always a joy to be here and open up God's word with you. Uh, I'm Jake Ledette, one of the pastors here. And uh, as I was preparing and dwelling upon this passage this week, obviously a lot came to mind, a lot that I'm about to share with you. Uh, But one thing in particular was just kind of how universal the reality of pain is. Like even with just, if you've ever experienced pain in any way, just raise your hand, any kind of pain. Uh, yes, everybody has experienced pain in this life. I think about even, I'm still a young man at 40 years old, um, and uh, I was working out the other day, believe it or not. Uh, It's a thing I still, on occasion, do. Uh, And I was talking to another guy, and one of the things I was thinking even about uh, the elders right now, we're all around the same age, and we all have rotator cuff issues. It's like a 38, 40-year-old thing. But if you're 38 or 40, you just get rotator cuff issues. And uh, this guy the other day at the gym, he had that. And I was like, how old are you? He's like 38. And I was like, yeah, that's right. That's just what happens. Um, and it's just as you get older, you experience more pain. And so maybe you avoid the rotator cuff thing, but none of us avoid pain. Uh, we all experience pain. It's just, it's universal. And, and the reality is, personally, uh, there are things that I've gone through in this life that are, have been really painful. Uh, things that in, in, in many ways are no fault uh, of my own. And that is a reality in this world, that we will be torn in ways uh, that, that um, are just no fault of our own, that, that we will be sin, sinful people will sin against us in, in minor and horrific ways uh, that, that cause pain. And the Bible has much to say about this reality. Uh, but but this, this passage in particular is gonna speak about pain uh, and, and being torn, but it's gonna speak about a different kind of pain. It's gonna speak of the, the suffering that comes from the consequences of sinful, destructive, rebellious decisions uh, in our lives. Because although I've experienced pain in my life that was at no fault of my own, I've also experienced dramatic pain in my life that came from great fault of my own. Uh, rebellious, sinful decisions that I have made uh, that have caused and brought pain uh, into my life. Um, and again, I think that's obviously another universal reality is that much of the pain uh, in our life comes from that reality. And, and none of us escape this. And, and in our passage, God is going to announce his judgment on the sins of the people. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing throughout much of Hosea. And God is saying, the decisions you're making are leading to the very things you fear actually. There is a life and healing available to you, and there is destruction available to you, and you continue to choose destruction. It's not something that's just happening to you. It's something that you are willfully choosing and bringing about uh, into your life. And so in light of our sinful rebellion, in light of Israel's sinful rebellion here in Hosea, we'll see just simply that God, it's a really straightforward passage, that God does two things that God tears and God heals. That he tears and that he heals. Uh, If you look there in verse eight, when we think about God tearing, we'll see that he actually announces his tearing. He says it's coming. Look in verse eight, it says, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O 
Benjamin. So God is telling the people of Israel, God is saying destruction is coming. He's calling out to kind of these metaphoric watchers at the gate to blow the horns and trumpet to warn Israel of its coming destruction. And Judah is included in this portion of the warning. Uh, Benjamin is a, a reference to Judah and the cities of Gibeah and Ramah are actually on the southern border of Israel saying to, you know, if you've been following along with the series, realize that this Hosea is primarily speaking to Israel, but here God is saying, hey, this, this, what's coming to Israel is coming close to the home uh, of Judah. Judah doesn't escape uh, what is going to happen here. And God says, sound the alarm and hear this announcement. And this is what he says in verses nine and 10. It's his announcement. Ephraim shall become a desolation and the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. And then again, he includes Judah. The princes of Judah have become like those who moved the landmark. Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. So if you remember, Ephraim is another name for Israel. It's, it's, like a, it's almost a more covenantal name. It's almost like uh, you know, what your mom yelled at you when you were in trouble. This is, that's the idea. It's like, this is, this is my child. It's, it's like God using the middle name here. Uh, like he's saying, he's calling out Israel in this kind of way. And he's saying, uh, they shall become a desolation. And then he actually accuses Judah of capitalizing on this by moving the landmark. Basically, the view is they view Israel's collapse as something to capitalize on and increase their boundaries and increase their borders. And so God is saying, because of that, I will pour out my wrath like water. I like what Tim Chester says about this. He says, God is a strange enemy. One of the key rules of military tactics is the value of surprise attack but God warns of his coming. He calls for the horn to be blown and the alarm to be sounded. This isn't some elite stealth team sneaking up and taking out a target. God says he's coming, everybody knows he's coming, and God is announcing that he is coming to judge. God used Hosea to, to sound the alarm for Israel and to show in real life how Israel continued to break the covenant with God. And Israel might make many excuses, but what we see in Hosea is they really don't have any excuses. God is not bashful about his judgment over sin. We might talk about it in a half-hearted way or as if it isn't really real, it's kind of real, but God tells the truth. And the truth is destruction and desolation is coming for Israel because of their sin and they are without excuse. That's the reality that we see here. This is happening in real life and spiritually speaking, we are all in the same place as Israel. We are no different. Assyria is threatening, but God has announced his coming judgment. Uh, Randy used Romans 1 uh, last week to kind of highlight God's passive wrath, uh, but I also think it highlights the reality that just like what, what God is saying here, Israel's out without excuse. The reality is none of us are gonna be without excuse. Romans 1, 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. And so listen to this. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The reality is the wrath of God will be revealed. And Romans 1 helps us see that no one is going to be surprised. Even now, for for those that aren't Christians, um, you, you have something in the back of your mind that when you make decisions, you are sinning against someone. That they're not just your personal choices you're making, but you're making them against a personal God. And and one day, every person will be before God and without excuse. You, me, everyone. And the excuses we make now, which we all make, will dissolve in light of his holiness. Will burn away in light of the reality of standing before a holy God. And God, this is where we see God announcing his judgment, God bringing his judgment in real time, is actually an abundant grace. It's an abundant grace that God gives earthly consequences to sin to show that there's actually an eternal spiritual consequence that is coming, that will happen. It's out of his kindness and grace that he does this, that we might see our sin in turn. If you see in uh, chapter five, verse 11, it says, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. Israel was going to be conquered by Assyria because they were determined to go after filth. This is what the Bible says. This is what common sense says. This is what all of experience tells us, that if you make sinful decisions over and over again, you will experience the effect of that in this life. This is how the world works. This is how God made the world to work. That when we make these kinds of decisions, we encounter these kinds of effects and, and our decisions matter. I think about, just even we think about all the other ways the world works that we don't argue with, I think about gravity. Like I think about right now, we have one of those sticky frogs, you know, you throw on the thing and it sticks. Well, this dude has been stuck to our ceiling for like, we're, we think if Guinness back, the Guinness Book of World Records was at our house right now, we might win because he's just been there for weeks. And, but here's the deal, gravity's gonna win. Like he, maybe right now it's even falling down. But it is going to, and none of us argue that. None of us think, oh man, that's such a surprise or how does that happen? It's how God has made the world to work and God has made the same world to work in this way. If if the God of the, the Bible created the world, he also created the spiritual realities of the, the world that we live in that are just as true and just as real. And so when we make sinful decisions, uh, we bear the effects of those decisions. And we all know this and in, in a real way, it's, it's common sense. Uh, there, there's effects that we experience in this life, but obviously there's also eternal, eternal consequences to the sin that we commit. And on that final day, no one's going to be surprised. Whether you've grown up in church or never heard the gospel, Romans 1 tells us that no one, none of us will have an excuse for rejecting God, that we all stand before him guilty. And not just guilty in this impersonal sense but we will see in that day that he is the one that made us, he's been there with us through the tragic things we've experienced, through everything, and refusing him is refusing the one that has actually loved us most all along the way. So it's not just this courtroom guilt, although that is that, it's this personal covenantal love, that's what Hosea is teaching us. It's, it's the one that has loved us most, that has bought us, that has sought us, and he is the one that we refused. And he is holy and righteous and, and, and did not need to do that, but out of his love, he did. Um, and that is who we will stand before in that final day. So God announces his tearing, but then we also see that God uses the things of this world to tear us. Look at verse 13. When Ephraim 
Saul his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. I mentioned, uh, and we've mentioned along the way, especially in the first week, how turning is just a major theme in Hosea. And this is referencing Israel realizing they are in trouble and needing help, but instead of turning to the one that called them out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land, the one that is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, instead of turning to Yahweh, they turned to Assyria. And God is going to use the very thing Israel is turning to as an object of his judgment towards them. We'll view the things of this world as gracious gifts from God, as people in need of God, as brothers and sisters, as creation to be enjoyed, or we'll turn the things of this world into gods that we need to deliver us. And that's what we see Israel doing. Assyria was a, a nation that needed to see the beauty and majesty of God and needed to see the distinctness of God's people and on display. And, and Israel saying, no, we need Assyria to be God for us. And we have those same two options. How often we turn created things into our own selfish, indulgent comfort. How often we view people as objects for our own selfish gratification, our gods in which we need their approval or money to answer all of our troubles. None of us escape even just that short list. We've all done those things. None of us escape the, the, the reality that we've rebelled in those ways. But the popular voices in our culture proclaim with great energy that none of us deserve God's judgment, that we're all doing fine, that we have good hearts. But, but on that final day, you will not believe that. And they will not believe that. The very things we use to justify ourselves will rise up to condemn us, just like Assyria is doing. God uses the things of the world to show us their inability to fulfill what we most need. And even the good they provide when used and with thankful hearts to him. Like the things of the world aren't evil, they're from God's hand to us. Uh, but they will never fulfill us like only God can. And God uses those to expose the reality of our life and our sin. So God announces his tearing. God uses the things of this world to tear us. And then finally, God is the one doing the tearing. God uses the things of the world, but God is the one doing the tearing. And the reality is we don't always know the reason something is happening in our life. We don't always know, uh, like even in this, I, I wanna caution us from like struggling or experience suffering and figuring out what God is trying to teach us. That's not, that's not exactly what I'm trying to talk about here. That can be, uh, especially some of us that have a sensitive conscience, like anytime something's going bad in our life, we think, we, man, we must have sinned or must have done something wrong. We don't always know that. But here we get a clear picture. Something is going wrong because they sinned. Like God's not leaving it up to like, oh, I wonder what's happening here. It's Israel has uh, betrayed and rebelled and God is judging through Assyria. That is exactly what's happening. God is the one doing the tearing. He says it in verse 10, that he is pouring out his wrath like water. In verse 12, he, he compares himself to a destructive moth or a dry rot, that he is bringing that kind of destruction to Israel. And in verse 14, we see plainly that he is the one doing the tearing, that he is a lion tearing and carrying off Israel and Judah. 
And so when we see, one again, and God's announced this, he's said this, he's, this is what's happening, he's using the things of the world to do this, and then he's saying with no, again, he's not bashful about this, he's saying, I'm the one doing this, I am the one behind this. And so what kind of place does that put us in? Like, where, where, are, we, where are we to go when God is the one doing the tearing? When God is judging, who is able to step in and save us? What nation can save us from the one who created all nations? What politician can save us from the, the one true and powerful and only good king? What billionaire can save us from the one who owns everything? Who, who can save us? Like we turn to the, we look upon even in our day, you know, they look, we're looking to Assyria, uh, but we look to the powers of our day, the things that are most powerful as, as something or someone that, that can save us. But if God is really more powerful than all of those things, who can really save us. I think the message uh, that our world offers is, is summed up well at the end of the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax. I quote The Lorax an unreasonable amount of times. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I've done it at Northbrook yet, but in my life. Um, and uh, it says something like this uh, at the end. Um, it says, unless someone like you cares a lot, nothing's going to change. No, it's not. And, and if we just apply that here, who, who's the one from Israel? Who's the one from us that's gonna be able to answer that call and save us from the predicament we're in? And that's what the world is saying, is saying there is someone out there, that can happen. Like we're, we're finally gonna start making the right decisions. If someone like you cares a lot, this whole world's gonna start getting better. Everything's gonna start going better. And that's just the message that continues to recycle. And then obviously, and I'm not trying to be Dr. Phil here, but how is that going for us? Like as a world, how is it going for us that, that we're able to answer this call and, and remedy the world's problems? It is not going well. I think often, even politically, if we think the other side would just listen. So maybe not if, like we're kind of doing what we need to do, but man, if they would just like, if, man, if those conservatives would just start caring about people, the world would be better. Or the conservatives would say, man, if those liberal people would stop just thinking that they're victims of everything, everything would be better. We just kind of blame the other side. If they answered the call, if they got it, then everything would be better and we would be all right. But the reality is all the liberal people and all the conservative people in the world find themselves in the same hopeless predicament guilty before a holy God. That there's none of us that escape that reality. And so obviously our only hope is that this God provides a way. That the one that tears is the one that also heals. That he provides a way for us to escape the destruction we all deserve. And obviously he does that in the most scandalous of ways. Just listen to 1 Peter 2. 24. I even didn't put these verses on the screen because I just wanted you to hear them and hear the words. It says, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then listen to this beautiful promise. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so here we see, not only does God tear but we see that God is actually the one that was torn. That God tears, but that God was the one that was torn. There was only actually one true Israelite. There's only one true Israelite, one that never turned from the Father, one that never turned to other gods, never turned to indulge his flesh, who was always and completely faithful, the true Israel, 
When Jesus walked this earth, he came as the one to fulfill everything we see Israel unable to fulfill here in Hosea. And he did it. And he did it even in the face of extreme trial, even though he was ridiculed and mocked and falsely accused. The true Israel, the son of God, was torn apart at the cross and carried away for destruction. I think of uh, Hosea 5.10, and unlike Judah, who used Israel's weakness to become strong, God used his strength to become weak. So now, instead of pouring his wrath out on Judah, he pours his wrath out on the son that the people of Judah might have hope. Or in Hosea 5.11, Ephraim was crushed because they ran after filth, and on the cross, Jesus became that very filth that he might be crushed for them. Brothers and sisters, when the ways we have been torn in this life are getting the best of us, when we are tempted like Israel to take our pain to other gods, brothers and sisters, we can just wait and gaze upon this cross where Jesus was torn for us. God tears and God is torn that we might turn not to the things of this world, but to him. Look at verse 15, we we see the purpose here. God reveals what he's doing and why he's doing it. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. In Hosea 2, we get pictures of God alluring and speaking tenderly to Israel when she had done nothing to deserve it. And here we we see God is waiting on Israel to respond. And I think it's, it's important for us to realize these are both aspects of God's work in our life. He runs after us when we don't deserve it, and he desires for us to acknowledge our guilt and seek his face. It's what God wants for us. That's what he says here in verse 15. What Israel needed to do was to acknowledge that they deserved to be devoured by the moth, that they had done nothing to earn God's favor, and in that acknowledgement, turn to God and say, we have no hope without you. That's the place Israel is in, and that was God is trying to reveal the reality and the truth of that. God has struck them down to show them the destructive path of sin, and to show them how they actually are truly dependent upon him. But they constantly trade this truth for what they can see. Is Assyria's right there, maybe, maybe they can provide real help. The temple prostitutes are right there, and they can provide real comfort, and maybe even bless the land in some way. Even religious activities of Judaism are more tangible than the God of Israel. Let's just keep doing the stuff of religion as we ignore the God of this religion. And this is the the beauty of grace. Although we do the same thing, God is there to welcome us back. He's saying just acknowledge it. Acknowledge what we both know to be true. Israel had turned to Assyria in their struggles and the false gods and their sinful practices and God sees the sin they're committing and he doesn't like the sins. He doesn't like that they're committing sins and we don't like this about God. Our culture doesn't like this kind of God. We have created a God in our culture that loves us completely and also affirms everything we're doing, no matter what it is. This is the the God of the day. And this is clearly taken root. It's easy to, to point this out in sexuality issues of our day. And that is a good thing to acknowledge and, and call people from. But brothers and sisters, it doesn't stop there. And, and sometimes we're too busy pointing our fingers over there that we don't see how much we also want God to affirm everything we are doing. 
even if we don't struggle with sexuality issues of our day, like many do, like many Christians struggle with. But there's so many things in your life and my life, whether that's a struggle or not, that we long for God to affirm that God says, no, I do not affirm that. We, we do that same thing. Just think in your life, where do you feel torn? Where do you feel pressed? What is that struggle? What is that press? Perhaps this is an area of your life you have sin that you have yet to acknowledge. Perhaps this is an area of your life and frustration and sin that you've been subtly desiring God to affirm. Just be like, no, this is okay, this is good. This is how we, we're experts at justifying ourselves uh, in these ways. Um, the way this is happening with Israel is obviously world shattering. Like what's going on there, uh, the amount of sin they're in, the way they need to come back to God, it's one of those kind of dramatic testimony kind of moments. And some of us may need that. Some of us may be living a life that is just completely divorced from anything that God actually wants for us. And we need one of those earth shattering kinds uh, of moments. I think about times like that or that in my life when I was just living a life completely in rebellion to God. And I needed to turn from everything I was doing and turn to God and seek his face. And that is something that needs to happen. Um, but then some of us uh, are have more mundane ways we struggle with sin and, and need to return to the Lord. Or I, I shouldn't say this. All of us have these more mundane ways that we do this that can go unnoticed. I think about even just in, I'll say just a few. Uh, I think about parenting. There's so much parenting that happens in my life right now. And uh, I was thinking just even last night, you know how we say things like, man, I need to do this. And we sneak a lot of stuff into that kind of statement. Like, man, I just need to do this. In reality, there's so few things we actually need to do. Uh, but there were some things I needed to do last night, and I was incredibly frustrated that I wasn't going to get to do those things. And it wasn't even like, you know, I don't know, drink whiskey and smoke a cigar. It wasn't even like my own fun. Um, anyway, sorry, I don't know if that was a distracting statement to make. But, uh, but, um, but it was I, like I wanted to clean my porch, and I wanted to put a new grill together. So maybe that's a little selfish. But... Um, but I just, those are things I just wanted to do, I needed to do. And I was telling Ginger, we had had baseball all weekend. And I was like, man, I'm just overwhelmed and I'm frustrated. I need these kids to go somewhere for a couple days so I can do anything. And uh, that's a direct quote, just in case you're curious. Uh, and, uh, and she was like, yeah. And she was like, yeah, but they're what's most important. And I just kind of walked away. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, it did kind of set with me a little bit. And then I was like, man, yeah, like I really don't need to do these other things. I really do want to do these other things. But man, just even that, like the, the, self, the sinful selfishness in that moment of just wanting to do what I wanted to do and the thing God actually had for me in that moment, not wanting to do, uh, and just that turn and the relief it brought. Like I went from being frustrated to, you know what, Lily, let's take a bath and snuggle and watch a show. I was, yeah, that's all I need to do. Um, and so we watched My Little Pony again. Um, and, uh, but, it, it did, but just even the way I experienced the rest of the night was different because of that mundane thing in my life that I could justify. So I was justifying. It, was so, it felt so right in my justification that this is what I needed to do and these people were getting in my way of doing that. Uh, and then the turn from that. Do you do that uh, in parenting? Do you need to acknowledge guilt and selfishness there. I think about even dating relationships. This is like an area where we feel most tempted 
to justify sin or to overlook struggle or just to, man, this is just part of it or this is just really hard and press boundaries and uh, ignore the desire to seek holiness. Maybe even in dating, ignoring character issues in someone because you just really desire companionship. And, and that's a struggle and that's hard. And then, it, But again, in, in that dating relationship and those kinds of desires, we can overlook uh, sin and struggle in our own life? Is there something there that you need to acknowledge guilt in um, and confess to the Lord? I, the last one I'll mention is just money. And I'll just be quick here. Is your spending out of control and leading to destruction? It's, it's like one of the clear signs of like, you know, reaping the effects of our sinful choices is our finances. It's like, is, our, is, is your spending out of control and you're suffering the consequences uh, of that? I even had, I was getting biblical counseling a while back and uh, I was talking, he's a good friend that was counseling me and um, I don't know how we stumbled onto it, but we started talking about money and he was like, man, if I was gonna sin with money, if I got $500,000, how I would sin with it is I would put it all in the bank and never touch it. Like, is our spending out of control or are we overly anxious about our spending and overly anxious and overly fearful uh, about money? It can go either direction there. Do you need to acknowledge guilt? and overspending or overstressing. Whatever it might be, has God announced his warning to you? Have you ignored his whispers like I was even just last night, his warnings? Uh, what has it led to? What has it led to in your life? We'll know anything by the fruit that it produces or what joy has it brought into your life. God is waiting for you, he's waiting for me. And in light of God waiting, Hosea steps in these next three verses and, and pleads with Israel. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. For he has struck us down and he will bind us up. So uh, Hosea was just announcing God's judgment, God's reality, the reality that God's waiting for us to acknowledge our guilt and seek him. And now Hosea is stepping in and, and calling and pleading with Israel, like, come, let's return to this God. He's there to be had. His arms are open wide, we can return to him. And it's in this returning that we see God heals. And we see just a biblical pattern here that we see really throughout the Bible so often. In verse 15 that we just focused on, we see that we're supposed to acknowledge guilt and seek God's face uh, and earnestly seek him. That's just the idea of confession and prayer, that, that acknowledging our guilt is acknowledging the real sin in our life to this holy God. Not just saying we're sinners. Everybody can say, oh, everybody's a sinner. That's one of the ways we actually justify our sin often is just lumping everybody in the same category. But we have specific sin that we've actually committed that we need to acknowledge before this God. And that's a part of the biblical pattern that we see uh, all throughout the Old and the New Testament is that we confess our sin. And then even the reality in verse 15 is that we realize he's calling the, a, a people to that. Like there's a communal aspect to this. This is, this is happening in community that prayer and confession happen with other people, that we can acknowledge our sins with others. We're just so individualistic that we do that with, we mostly do that with the things we struggle with. I mean, we can do that with the things we're good at, but we usually like people to know those things. Uh, but the things we struggle with, the sin in our life, man, we're so private about those things. And if you just read the Bible, you just don't get that picture at all. 
It's always talking about confession in this communal kind of way. And so I don't mean that means you need to get up here and tell us your deepest, darkest secrets, but it just means there's a communal aspect. We should have people in our life that we're able to acknowledge these things with and confess these things to. I'm so thankful for just friends God has put in my life where I have this. I'm thankful for the other elders at Northbrook where we have these kinds of relationships where we can talk about these kinds of things um, and confess them to one another, with one another, uh, and go to God in prayer for them. And so, and then we see uh, part of the pattern is obedience. In verse one, come, let us return to the Lord. That is turning from the things that we were doing that were rebelling against God and to God in obedience. That there's actual obedience showing up in our lives. That's a a real thing that we should pursue as a, a Christian community. And that's what repentance is. If it doesn't turn to you turning to and, and obeying in any particular way, then you're still turning from God um, and disobedience. And so when we return to the Lord, that's a picture of obedience. And then we see what God does. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. So he's the one, that, he's the one that's torn and struck down, but he's also the one that's healed and bound our wounds. And then verse two is just this beautiful picture. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Obviously, you know, the New Testament's ringing in all of our minds, Romans 6, 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's, that's, that's what Hosea is ultimately pointing to here. That this is even a a picture, even in the Old Testament, of our union with Christ. That we're united with him in the death that he has died, and we're united with him in the life and the resurrection that he has led us in. And we get to live out of that. A lot of us, unfortunately, though, we want to be revived without dying. we, We want the resurrection without the cross. And we're actually maybe even somewhat fine with Jesus doing all of that. We just don't want to do that. Um, and, and that's the model he's put before us. I, I quote uh, this all the time, David Pallison. He talks about how, you know, what feels like life often leads to death, and what feels like death leads to life. And that is the pattern of the cross. There's parts of us as sinful people that need to die, and that is painful. Death is painful. Um, and that is a pain that we experience in the cross. And the roadmap to experiencing and walking in and living in Uh, the resurrection that Jesus has secured for us. And this is just part of the Christian life. It's something that happens in our salvation, but then something that continues to happen on this side of eternity, that we continue to to put to death the misdeeds of the body that we might live, um, as Romans 8 tells us. And so um, we are united with Christ. And then verse 3 There's this continual seeking and faithful walking and trusting in God's promises. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Randy talked about this a bit last week. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come as the showers, as the spring rains, as the spring rains water the earth. I I just love that as sure as the rising of the sun tomorrow is as sure as the promises of God. Every one of them. None of of the things that God has promised us will ever fill us. They're as certain as the reality of the sun rising tomorrow. That's what the the, the Bible points us to again and again of what it looks like to walk faithfully with God. Not that we're not gonna experience pain, not that we're not gonna experience uh, death even, 
but that his promises will remain true regardless of those things. Um, And that we get to have that hope and that faith. So we confess, we turn to God in prayer and obedience. God heals us. God binds us. Any any restoration is going to come from him. He revives us. We press on in faith, believing God's promises as sure as the rising sun and the spring showers. And, And the point here is that there is no healing outside of God. There's nowhere to go to find healing outside of going to God. That's the only place for restoration. It's the only place. And so, like, even if I think relationally, like, if you're in a relationship where where that's not happening, you you both have to be committed to finding that healing in God. And when when that's not there, there's a certain account kind of restoration that, that isn't going to take place. And there can be forgiveness and there can be walking in humility. There can be considering all kinds of things, but restoration comes from God. And so we, the only people that are gonna experience that restoration are the ones that acknowledge that reality. There's, there's nowhere else to run to for healing and restoration outside of God. And I don't mean that there aren't things of the world that like, just like God uses the things of the world to tear, he can use much of this world to, to bind and heal and help and restore. Uh, but ultimate restoration only comes from God. Um, and rebelling against his ways, we are struck down and returning to him, we will be bound up. And, and this is why we take communion each week here. In, in taking communion, we do this. We acknowledge that there is no hope outside of the cross. There's no hope outside of what Jesus has done for us. If Jesus didn't die for our sin, we are still in our sin, in this hopeless predicament with nowhere to turn. Even though they didn't know this like we do, Israel's only true hope was Jesus, was Jesus dying on the cross. Uh, The most uh, humble of Israel looked to God in this kind of way, realizing that there was no hope outside of God doing something, although they didn't know exactly what that was going to be. We get to know, we know what that was. Israel's only hope, Judah's only hope, our only hope is what Jesus was willing to do for us uh, on the cross. Even Mark 8.31, where Jesus talks about this, even kind of sounds a little Hosea-like when he says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then this is where he picks up Hosea. And after three days, rise again. And so here in a minute, you'll actually get this opportunity. An opportunity to declare that your, your need for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And celebrate that Jesus was willing to meet you in that need. This is one of the things I pray for my kids so many nights. God, would you help them see their sin? Would you help them see their need for Jesus? And God, would you help them see that you were so willing to meet them in that need? And this is what we do when we come and take a, uh, the bread and the wine and the juice is, man, I am incredibly needy. There's no hope outside of this reality. And look what God has done. Look what he's done. He, he's medicine that. He knows us. He's known our weakness. He knows our dependence. He knows our our rebellion. And he has provided completely and fully. And yet there's nowhere else to go. Anybody can come, but there's nowhere else to go. And so, you know, how we do this here is you can uh, have a moment to pray and consider uh, here in a moment when I'm done, you can come and get the elements and uh, and then you're going to go back to your seat. And, and here's what we want to do with this time after the sermon here at Northbrook is we just want to give you freedom. 
Like we want to give you some space. We want you to have time to, man, if the Spirit's doing something, we want you to press into that. We want you to press on and know the Lord here in uh, these moments. Or maybe the Spirit hasn't been working uh, in a way that you've noticed, and you can tune into that right now in this moment and ask him, God, what are you doing? Uh, but some of you, you know what he's doing, and you get a moment to, to press into that and to consider, to, to confess sin that he's revealed, to uh, receive comfort that he has for you for maybe the ways in your life you've, you've been torn that, that have not been a result of your sinful decisions, but you are experiencing. This is that kind of moment. So it's less about you trying to figure out what to do and more about, man, you're just following and being led by the Spirit and what he's leading you to. And so as you do that, you, you'll get a chance if... Uh, to take the bread on your own as you pray and consider and see what Jesus has done for you. And then, like, just like Israel, we, we see that this isn't just an individual need, but it's a corporate need, that we're united in Jesus' death together as a church and his resurrection together as a church. And so that's when I'll come back up and you can wait to take the cup because we'll take that together. And that's what we're saying when we do that. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 and proclaiming our need, not just as individuals, but as a body for everything uh, that Jesus um, has done. And so feel freedom to stand and sing, to sit and pray, to come and get the elements quickly, to, to wait a minute. But after that first, the end of that first song, we'll, we'll um, take the cup uh, together. Um, as I, I think about just my hopes for us in this, um, that, as I said in that first week, that I would pray and hope that this would be a season of us returning to the Lord. Uh, again, that there would be those, those moments, those places in our life where we kind of need that dramatic turning. Like it's not been a, a, uh, uh, an indifference or a subtle, it's been outright rebellion that we've just been walking in. And that the Spirit would just use this moment to help us return, confess that, acknowledge that, invite brothers and sisters into that. Uh, but that also, there's ways, there's, 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 we're going to go to our grave with sin we're unaware of. To some degree, that should give us some rest. <laughs> but also, man, the Spirit has much He wants to do. In many ways, He wants to grow us. And so maybe we came in even being unaware of some of that sin. Maybe some of that, uh, that kind of parenting, uh, dating relationship, marriage, money, all of those kinds of things. Maybe the, the Spirit's revealed things there that in those we wouldn't be hesitant, but we would be quick to return to the Lord. And so you can get the elements when you're ready, but I would just encourage you in this time, in this moment, uh, to follow the Spirit's leading. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, any hope we have of returning is gonna be born and carried out by you and your power. And so we just proclaim our need for you to lead and guide and help and direct and tend and convict and encourage. Just those things you do, your ministry, we, we, we ask for it to come in abundance. Pray against the, the ways that even our own hearts are resistant, the way the enemy wants to keep, to keep drawing us back to rebellion or indifference or frustration or bitterness, even, even towards you, God. 
And so Spirit, we just ask and invite you to work here. And would you work in such a way that leaves us seeing and knowing that that Jesus is truly our only hope. And glorifying him and worshiping him and seeing him and savoring him and enjoying him and loving him and and longing to turn from the things of this world that, that we enjoy so much in so many sinful ways and finding our ultimate joy in this Jesus spirit. Would you do that so that we might engage the world as you have meant it to be, as a, as, a, as a gift from you, as the people, that they're not objects, but they're brothers and sisters, they're, they're people that need to know and hear of your gospel. Spirit, would you just help us? Would you move in that way? So we invite you now, in Christ's name.